Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters. I'm Robin Sessingham. There's a lot of voter interest in the upcoming elections. The primary is just weeks from now. There's also some concern that our elections may come under cyber attack or run into other problems that could compromise their dependability. How worried should we be about that? In the studio with us is Brian Corley. He's the supervisor of elections for Pasco County. And with us from Washington, D.C. is Miles Parks, an NPR reporter on the Washington desk who covers election interference and voting infrastructure. Brian and Miles, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, Brian, what is coming up? What, what are the upcoming elections that we're looking at? Well, we have on St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, we have the presidential preference primary, which is going to be a whole bunch of Democratic nominees. And also for the first time in 28 years in Florida, we have the incumbent being challenged. President Trump will be on the ballot for those that are registered Republicans to vote along with three other individuals. Last time that happened was 1992 when Pat Buchanan challenged President Bush 41. So, Brian, voter databases in two Florida counties were breached by Russian hackers ahead of the 2016 elections, but state officials didn't know anything about it until last year. Why did it take so long for Florida leadership to be made aware of the problems? Well, I certainly can't speak to the the Secretary of State in Florida or the Division of Elections, but we have to remember it was a phishing attempt going back to 2016. I know because I received one of those nefarious emails, if you will, along with my colleagues around the state. But you didn't click on it. I did not, nor did my staff. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was the obvious goal was to deliver the payload of a malicious um, software. But we know there were were two kinds that were breached. Why? You know, the FBI has, has a policy where they'll notify those that were um, the victims, if you will, and they don't share it necessarily with others. So there seemed at that point there seemed to be a miscommunication or a lack of communication among, between the federal and the state government, uh, which is a little little concerning to me as an elections administrator. Yeah. So Miles, I think Governor Ron DeSantis was a bit irritated that he just heard about it. I think with the Mueller report <laughs> earlier right. in 2019. Uh, what was going on there? Yeah, it was. it's interesting. It's kind of crazy to think that the governor of a state would hear about something at the same time, say, me reading the Mueller report, I found out the fact that the governor would be finding out at the same time. This kind of goes back to this broader issue that we've been reporting on a lot the last couple of years. Leading up to the 2016 election, it just seems like the federal government did not have a super clear game plan for how to deal with election interference. It was kind of ad hoc when they would figure something out. They would talk to the person who they think was the right person, but they didn't have a whole lot of plans in place. And so in the last couple of years, the thing that they say makes 2020 a lot safer than 2016 isn't even as much like technical advances as much as there's a plan in place now for who gets told what. The FBI came out with a statement and this, they said, basically, we've changed the way that we're going to communicate about cyber attacks in a case like Florida. They didn't say Florida specifically, but it was very clear what they were talking about. Now, rather than just notifying the county and saying it's up to the county if they want to notify the state or if they want to notify other people, they're going to notify the head of the state elections as well, which in most cases would be the secretary of state at the same time or right after as they notify the county. So that 
hopefully means that this, this, this 2016 issue won't be happening if the similar issue happens in 2020. Yeah, Brian. Let me piggyback off what Miles is saying. That's, that's a great point. Not only is there communication, but with elections being declared critical infrastructure back in um, January of 2017, there was concern about it was a federal overreach of elections administration. It ended up being one of the best things that ever happened because elections has a seat at the table. The underpinnings of our democracy is just a smidgen important, I think we'd all agree. So we are working tirelessly with Department of Homeland Security, also the FBI, but DHS has been invaluable Quite frankly, I, I have colleagues around the, the nation I speak to, and they've done testing, on-site testing, remote testing. They've provided training and guidance. And so that, not, not only communication, but we also have what's called EIISAC, which is under the umbrella of DHS. It's a communication network. And so we have several of my colleagues in Florida that are on what's called the Government Coordinating Council. So election ministry is working directly with DHS and the FBI and all of our intelligence community, law enforcement to make sure that we have a, not only a plan in place for communication, but a plan to make sure that our elections are secure for 2020. So, so better communication with the federal government all around, it sounds like. And Miles, as you said, the FBI said that they are going to change the way they do things and try and communicate better with the actual state leadership where counties have been hacked. The FBI also said that in the case of the hacking, the interference in those two counties in Florida uh, leading up to 2016 election, that no votes were changed or anything like that, like no results were manipulated. What do officials say is the point of, of just hacking into a computer system and just sort of like messing with people? Well, there's a couple different points of view on that. It, the bottom line is we don't know the motivations of these these attackers, but we do know that they were inside the system of these two Florida counties enough to where they were able to see a lot of data and they were able to see the back end of the infrastructure. There's some debate about whether they could have potentially changed some registration data. This is all publicly available data, so it would have probably been figured out had they decided to change anything. But the point is there's a lot of different potential motivations. There's you know some camps that say potentially these Russian attackers were breaking in and kind of mapping out the infrastructure, seeing how the back-end systems uh, work in these cases with the intention of coming back, whether it's 2020, 2024, or just down the road at some point. Government infrastructure in the United States doesn't change that quickly. It's not like if they come back in two to four years that probably most of these systems will not be radically different. So that's a potential that they could have just been kind of checking out the scenery to see, you know, potentially planning a future attack. The other thing, and maybe the more likely case, is that they were able to succeed without even changing any votes. If you define success not as affecting election results, but about affecting doubt in the electorate about whether any election results were affected. Elections are pretty complicated subjects. So when people hear hacking, they hear that an election system or two counties election systems were breached. I don't think there's a level of nuance between for a lot of voters that are able to make the connection that, oh, my vote wasn't affected uh, versus, oh, they just were able to see some publicly available data. And we actually at NPR did a survey, a poll that found this to be true, that there are more than 40 percent of Americans think that the 2020 elections, that there is going to be a foreign country who is going to be manipulating votes, like actually changing votes, which is a radical misunderstanding of what even what happened in 2016. We've never seen that in American elections. We have no proof that that has ever happened. And yet a, a sizable chunk of the American populace thinks it did, which potentially could have been the goal. Miles, 
and this is no criticism of you personally, but does some of that fault lie with the media that there is so much confusion? I have thought about that a lot over the last couple of years, so no insult taken. I think a big problem from 2016 that we realized was that there was a, not a lot of understanding, and it was clear, and I think that that's what makes me feel less bad about it, is it was clear the federal government even hadn't thought that much about how they were going to deal with this. Guess who else hadn't thought about it? The media. There were a lot of reporters out there who had never really covered election infrastructure before, uh, me included. So you had this this year, two-year period as these attacks were happening, and then in the immediate aftermath where the federal government didn't know how to communicate about them, didn't know how to message about them. They were telling people it was secretive in a way that a lot of people think was detrimental to public confidence. And then you had reporters who, in some cases, were either reporting things that were not helpful for the public to know or not reporting them in a way that was easily digestible. So you kind of had this mismatch on a lot of different levels that just led to a lot of confusion. Yeah, Brian. Miles makes some great points. Uh, it's just important to remember, like, when we throw out terms like election systems breached, you know, in essence, what you had were individuals in two counties who clicked on an attachment. Your listeners, every one of us, if you go to your Yahoo or Gmail or whatever account, we get spear phishing emails every day. You know, apparently there's someone in Nigeria that wants to give me $20 million if only I'll click on <laughs> something and give my social security number, for example. Voter database is, it's important to note, that's in no way connected to a voting tabulation system. That's One has nothing to do with the other as far as casting your vote, physically casting your, your vote. There is concern about, of course, going in and Miles alluded to altering voter data. In Florida, not only is it publicly available, it's free. So, you know, you had two states, Illinois and Arizona, that were truly had their state voter registration system, as reported in the Mueller report, truly breached. And the GRU went in there and left kind of footprints of what they were doing. That didn't happen in, in Florida. but The GRE? The GRU. That's Vladimir Putin's CIA, if you will, a military component in Russia that, that was responsible for doing a lot of the so internet they, trolls. they let it be known that they had been there? Well, unknowingly or knowingly, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, our, every one of our intelligence agencies came to that conclusion. Mm-hmm. But the point Miles alluded to is, is spot on. One of the, the goals of these nefarious actors in 2016 was to erode voter confidence. And mm-hmm. so I hear that all the time when I go out and talk in my community. Sadly, I think they succeeded because the voter confidence has eroded uh, since 2016. And that's important that we get that back. And also it's polarized Americans. One kind of leads to the other. So it's it's a concern that voters have confidence that they know when I took over my current position as the supervisor of elections in 2007, that time we used touchscreens in most large counties in Florida and uh, made the decision to go back, the legislature go back to paper ballots. At the time, no one realized what a great decision that was going to be in 2008 because you can't hack paper. You know, that's one of the best things we have for going old school. Safety and security is going back to paper ballots. Not all states have that as Florida does. Yeah. And Miles, you've reported that some state is using their phones or using an app to vote in the upcoming elections? There are these pilots happening across the country in these small pockets. Uh, West Virginia allowed overseas and military voters to vote on their phones in 2018. And then for the first time ever in King County, which encompasses the greater Seattle area, all eligible voters will be able to cast a ballot in a Board of Supervisors election, which is, again, not the presidential primary, not the presidential election, but it's a step in that direction. There's a lot of people who are pushing, while at the same time there's a lot of the election community pushing back to paper, 
there are these pockets of America that are pushing toward experimenting with mobile voting in these small elections with the intention that they want to expand this out over the next 10 years. We'll see actually if that takes on and if these pilots are successful. But it's kind of interesting to have that zig and zag happening at the same time. Yeah. So, Miles, while you were speaking, you couldn't see, but Brian Corley was shaking his head and giving the thumbs (laughs) down. So he's obviously you're not on board with voting by phone. No, it's a wonderful idea. I don't think it's ready for prime time. The security, they talk about blockchain technology, and and you can have um, malware installed on, say, your your iPhone. Unknowingly, that will, you know, the idea is you you can validate your vote on the back end. But unbeknownst to you, it's still changing and just showing you a mirror of, of the image. And so I've done a lot of research on this, and it's too important. You have to get it right. It's too dicey. You have to stick with paper, in my opinion. My guests are Miles Parks, an NPR reporter who covers election interference and voting infrastructure, and Brian Corley, supervisor of elections for Pasco County. So one thing that should make voters feel a little better was that when Governor DeSantis said that the FBI and Homeland Security officials told him that Florida is ahead of the curve in election cybersecurity ahead of the 2020 election, although he warned that attacks change constantly. So, Brian, what changes has your office and other offices put in place to make the upcoming elections safer? Well, that's the challenge because we've received federal HAVA, uh, Help America Vote Act security money. And the challenge is this. I can tell you we've done a tremendous amount, but I can't go into tremendous detail because it would show our hand. It's sort of like, you know, telling a would-be burglar, you've gotten this new alarm system and you've moved this sort of deadbolt over this door. I can tell you we've done a lot to prepare on the front end. The Florida legislature did fund every SOE office to get what's called an Albert sensor, which is a military-grade monitoring of your network 24-7, 365 that reports back to DHS, any, any network activity that we'd be concerned about. We have worked extensively to upgrade our systems to make sure that we're as secure as we can be. For obvious reasons, I can't go into tremendous detail. My colleagues around the state and the nation, quite frankly, have pretty much gone above and beyond. We're not relaxed. We're hypervigilant. But I think we're in a good posture going into 2020. I really think we're in a, we're in a good space, and we're, we're continuing to uh, every day. You know, the threats are real, and they're evolving. And the, the bad guys and girls only have to be right one time. We have to be right 100% of the time, and we're aware of that. So I, I think going into 2020, we've done a lot to upgrade our systems and, and shore up our networks. And quite frankly, the biggest concern, and I think the most important thing that gets overlooked in this whole discussion is we're so hyper-fixated as well we should be on sh- shoring up our networks, the security of our voting machines. But there's a huge lane on the other side that no one's talking about that happened in 2016 that was the primary catalyst for meddling in elections was the misuse and the hijacking of social media. And that's happening right now. And that's going to happen in 2020. And that's the real concern I have is the voters who are unknowingly aiding and abetting, again, foreign state actors who are manipulating Twitter and Facebook and other platforms to influence the outcome of our election. And that's nothing that we can prepare for. That's an outside private entity. So you're just worrying that people are voting based on bad information. That really doesn't have anything to do with the actual vote that they cast or how those are counted. That's correct. But what we saw, I mean, as in the Mueller report, over 72,000 Americans RSVP'd to a political rally on Facebook that truly was, pardon the pun, fake news that was originated from Moscow. So when you like or share something on Facebook, there's a strong possibility in 2016 and through today that it may have originated in, in another country. You know, in 2016, it was Russia, but now we're being advised and it's been reported to look out for issues with Iran, China, North Korea, et cetera. And so 
misinformation, disinformation mm-hmm. is the biggest concern I have. You know, telling voters election day is Wednesday, sending out nefarious information, making it look like it's from an official source when it's not, and, yeah. uh, and using that propaganda pieces. Miles, the federal government allocated, wasn't it cl- somewhere in the neighborhood of half a billion dollars to the states to improve cybersecurity for elections? Yeah, it's been total, I think, over $600 million at this point, if you add up the allocation of a couple of years ago, plus the one that was just allocated this year. Brian was saying, I mean, that's just kind of an interesting point. It's all very secretive. He doesn't want to say exactly how the money's being spent. But then how is that tracked? How are they making sure that the counties are spending it well? There's no question that from a technical standpoint, the U.S. is going to be in a much better place than they were in 2016. One of the things that you can look at is just the amount of voters who are going to be voting on systems that do not involve an auditable paper trail. That number has been slashed more than in half in 2020 versus 2016. So that is a huge development. A lot of cybersecurity experts would say that's the biggest development. And we know a lot of money has also gone into system security. We don't know all of the details there. There are some people who would say Congress probably should have put a little bit more strings on that money. It's a kind of a push and pull between the local governments don't want strings on that money because they say they know their elections, you know, better than anyone else. They know how that money should be spent. The states really don't like having federal oversight. But a lot of people are a little frustrated that they can't know exactly how this money that's been allocated from Congress is being spent. But another huge part of the 2016 interference effort was breaking into the email accounts of campaign officials. Russian attackers were able to break into officials with the DNC, share those emails, and really drive the narrative, use that propaganda campaign on social media to drive the narrative for a year, the media narrative and the social media narrative. That's probably the thing we have the least insight into, is how secure are these campaigns to make sure that their emails and their data is not going to get stolen again, because that can have a huge effect on the national election. Another thing I'm wondering is, are there some counties that are more vulnerable to hacking because they they just don't have the resources that other counties do? And could that have something to do with the two counties that were picked? No, because that was just, it didn't matter. It was a fluke. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter if you're Miami-Dade, Pasco, or or Bradford County, clicking on something, you know, a nefarious attachment is is just that. But I will say this. You're only strong as your weakest link. And by weakest link, I mean, you're actually right. There's counties in Florida that their entire voting population, I have precincts that are larger. They don't have the infrastructure. They don't have IT staff. So they rely on the county and whatnot. So that's a great point you bring up, Robin. I will tell you this, with the grant monies in 2018 from the federal government, Florida was the only state in the nation where we had a very strict timeline, a use it or lose it provision. It was very frustrating back in 2018. We were told by the Department of State in Florida what we did not spend by election day at midnight had to be returned to the state, where other states had multi-year plans. Had to be returned to? The the Department of State in Florida. Okay. The Congress allocates the money to the Elections Assistance Commission, who allocates it to the state, Department of State, in each respective of the 50 states. We were the only state in the nation. You know, other states had multi-year plans in place Mm. for expenditures. We didn't have that luxury. So there were obviously leftover funds. And one of the things that Secretary Laura Lee is doing is working with some of the smaller counties, you know, with that exact thing you're talking about, because they don't have the resources. And so that is, I think, a very prudent move by Secretary Lee, and I support that. So it's it's just too important. What about this Electronic Registration Information Center, or ERIC? 
Now, did Florida join that? Member states of ERIC exchange voting information and they look for duplicate registration. So it's a way to keep people from voting in more than one state. Miles, have you been keeping up with that? A little bit. I know that Florida just recently joined, right? And so this is kind of considered the most data-driven way that you can kind of clean up your voter rolls. This isn't really related to the actual cybersecurity of the states, but in terms of when people talk about, oh, all these dead people are voting or all these people who have left the state are coming back and being bussed in to vote. Eric is considered in the election community kind of the most data-driven way that states can communicate with each other and make sure their their roles are correct. Yeah, Eric is something that I personally have been at lobbying for for years, uh, along with my colleagues, and we're excited that, that we got over the goal line. Eric is, is made up of now, I think it's Florida was the big fish, 31 states, hopefully get to 50. It's non-governmental. It's basically a non-profit. And President Reagan's famous quote, the eight, eight most feared words in the English language, I'm from the government, I'm here to help. It's non-governmental. <laughs> but uh, Miles is absolutely right. It's two-pronged. Number one, it cleans up your voter rolls. So while not directly tying into cyber, it's the integrity of the election. And, you know, I get it all the time. A lot of it's driven by cable channels, shall we say, news channels, allegations of rampant voter fraud of, of people, you know, coming from other countries just to cast a vote. The biggest issue we had with voter fraud, and I can tell you because I'm on the front lines, is individuals who register in multiple states and vote. It's very rare, but it, it does happen. And, and so, probably a lot of the times it's not intentional. Being they, registered, they've no, moved and they just don't know. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And Florida's a very transient state, as we know, now the third most populous. And it's very common for voters you know, who may be registered in Allegheny County, Pittsburgh, to move to you know, Hillsborough County and not realize they register there. Being registered is not the problem. It's when you consciously vote in, in two states. That's the issue. This will clear it up. Also, um, if, if a Florida voter dies in another state, they don't always notify Florida, so it's possible. But the other side of Eric is it identifies those that are eligible but unregistered, or EBU, and it requires the state to reach out to them. So we'll send a postcard out letting them know that they're certainly eligible to vote and they can register to vote online. And so it's it's cleaning up your voter rolls, the integrity of the elections, but also access to voting. So it's really has a little bit of something for everybody. So I was talking to the founder, David Becker of Eric, a couple weeks ago. Great guy. And I told him that, you know, I moved away from Florida about five years ago, but I checked my registration a couple weeks ago and I am one of those people who is still registered in the state just because it's not something I thought about. And he got super excited. He's like, we're going to catch you. We're going to find that. And because there's how many, you know, hundreds of other people like me who just hadn't thought about it. I've never voted in Florida since I moved away, but even just the fact that I'm still active on the rolls there was really surprising to me. It's not uh, you know necessarily catching a bunch of people with bad intentions as much as just making sure that these states have up-to-date rolls. You know, a point you made, Brian, was that it's a way to notify people who are eligible to vote but unregistered. But your office is concerned about this organization, the Voter Participation Center mm, yes, in Washington, D.C., and that's apparently what they do. They're sending out mailers to certain households trying to get more voters signed up. What's the problem with that? Their intentions are pure. Their execution is horrible, quite frankly. Um, and it's not just Pasco County. It's not just Florida. It's multiple states around the nation. The data they rely on to send information out could be magazine subscriptions, commercial database. So what happens is this group will notify, say, Florida, they're going to send out pre-filled voter registration forms out. The problem is we know to send an immediate alert out because we're going to get hundreds of phone calls from constituents that 
I've been registered for 20 years. Why am I getting this pre-filled voter registration So it's, conf- it's sowing more confusion Confu- among And er- eroding voter confidence when they mm-hmm. get one for deceased spouse. We've had some for nine-year-old children, pets. That's not helping the process. And they probably look pretty official. It looks very official, extremely. And that's the problem. And and that's not helping. But Eric has a proven track record of accuracy with regards to the eligible and registered. So, Miles, I want to just try and get a feeling from you, too. You do a lot of work, not just in Florida, but nationally. Can you quantify it, how people feel, uh, whether their votes are being counted accurately? And what's the sense out there? I mean, I think anecdotally throughout my reporting, the thing I've found is that people are really nervous about what happened in 2016 and that there is not a clear understanding. Very rarely do I go up to somebody to do kind of a man-on-the-street interview if I'm reporting somewhere and say, you know, in some different language, can you kind of explain to me what you understand happened in 2016? Very rarely do people have a complete view of it. Usually it's something like, oh, well, Russia hacked the election or Russia was in favor of Trump and and wanted him to win. And so they affected things. But in terms of the granular understanding, it's just very, very small. And anecdotally, when I go home, you know, for Christmas and talk to people at parties, it's the same thing. So I feel like we've seen that in our polling in terms of how these huge numbers of, of people who are not confident in the election infrastructure. That number has been slowly on the rise since really since the 2000 election with Bush v. Gore, which was not a hacking situation, but another big situation, national media attention, where a lot of people were saying, oh, the elections are not done correctly or something like that. And there is a disconnect between people's understanding and reasoning and what's actually happening, because it's inarguable that the 2020 election is going to be quote-unquote safer, more secure than the 2016 election. But I don't know that that message has really gotten out to people. I think we need to have a successful run before people really see that, that things have improved. We need to have an election happen, the midterms notwithstanding, but a national presidential election where something huge doesn't go wrong. I agree with everything Miles said. Florida, I think to some degree, gets a little bit of a bad rap. I know going back to the 2000 election always comes to mind, but we have beyond expansive methods of voting. You know, a lot of states don't even have early voting, don't have vote by mail or absentee ballot voting without a, an affidavit. What's interesting, though, is we've seen a tremendous increase in vote by mail, which, you know, you, you do it from home. And I just find that interesting because it, almost a disconnect between the polling. If you're not thinking your vote's going to count when you're putting it in a machine, you're putting it in the mailbox and having it delivered to us. And, of, of course, it does count. I get that all the time. Oh, Brian, if I vote by mail... The only counts and recounts are close elections, right? They think we just hold on to it on the off chances of recount, which in Florida means pretty much every election, as you, as we all know. But those are counted actually first. And what it's interesting in Florida, the model had been election day was the show. Now, about two thirds of votes cast are before election day with early voting and vote by mail. And so, I would agree. You know, 2018 went off very smoothly, and it was a pretty contentious midterm. I will tell you this though: I did see in 2016 voters were angry. It was palatable. I go back to previous elections and you would see voters in line at, say, early voting and had a block party feel. It didn't matter their political party or gender or race, et cetera. It was coming out doing their civic duty. 2016, voters were there for a purpose. And I'm optimistic because in 2018, it seemed to be a little bit of return of civility among the voters. And I'm, I'm optimistic that we'll see that in 2020. But voters need to know they're going to come out and have their vote cast and it's going to count. We can't be liable for the outcome. That's between the voters and the good Lord above. But as far as the administration, I think we have a good handle on it. 
That's Brian Corley, the Supervisor of Elections for Pasco County. We've also been speaking with Miles Parks, NPR reporter on the Washington desk covering election interference. Thank you both so much for being on Florida Matters. Thank you. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. And there are lots of ways to connect with us. You can tweet us at Florida Matters. You can find us on the WUSF Facebook page. And remember, you can listen to Florida Matters whenever it's convenient for you as a podcast. Just search for it and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Florida Matters is a production of WUSF Public Media. The engineer is Craig George. The show was produced by Steve Newborn. I'm Robin Sussingham. Thanks for listening. Thank you.